Please be seated. Good morning. Okay, who's got their Christmas shopping done? Look at that. I'm impressed. And for the rest of you, there are liars among us. <laughs> it's always so wonderful to be here with you. It's a treat in my life. One of the things that I do because I, I preach in many different places and have now for a number of years, I keep a, a preaching diary so that I know, you know where I've been and the basic kind of um, gist of what I said so that I don't accidentally go back someplace and repeat myself. But it's also just very helpful to kind of see the history unfold. So uh, this week, I, I pulled up my, my entry for St. Wilfred's, and I realized, and there it was, the very, the first Sunday that I was ever here, the first Sunday I preached was second Sunday of Advent in 2005. Uh, it was the, I, I was just in beginning my second year at the seminary, and I had, um, I decided that since I was coming down for a convention, I would take a look at the churches in this diocese that had been most generous to the school, and I'd make some connections. And you all have, have always been a huge supporter of theological education. So I, I called up and said, you know, I can, uh, Harold was the rector then, and I said, you know, I could, I could let you off the hook for preaching on the, the Sunday after convention. And he said yes, and okay, here we are. The rest is history. <laughs> Michael and I were talking. That was your first advent here. Allison wasn't here yet. Okay, put on your thinking caps. How many of you think you were probably here the second Sunday of advent of 2005? Oh, not bad. Well, some of what you hear may sound familiar. Oh, good. The, um, I love the, uh, the scripture text when we get into Advent, particularly the passages this morning, the ones from Malachi and the passage from Luke. I don't know how many of you are like me, but how many of you inevitably hear the music from Handel's Messiah when you hear these passages? Yeah, you're like me, okay? For he is like the refiner's fire. My apologies to the basses in the choir. <clears throat> I know that's not very good. But it's a wonderful solo. It's just so incredible. And that intensity and the quaking in the voice. And in the orchestra, the violins have this, you know, this incredible shudder. And, you know, you can close your eyes and you can feel the heat flames, you know, flicking at your heels. I mean, it's just brilliant music, and it brings those words to life in a, in a way that, you know, is beyond what the page itself can contain. And then, of course, the Luke passage, right? Every valley shall be exalted. La, da, 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 da. It's, ooh, should have had you guys do that this morning, you know? Oh, it's just wonderful. You know, 
when the crooked made straight and the rough places plain and smooth. And those, those words become imprinted in our memories and in our hearts in a very special way because of what, what Handel was able to do in bringing them to life off of the page and inscribing them in our emotional lives. I'm so grateful for the, all the artists that can do that. Um, my Christmas is always a very much a, a memory time about birth for me because my daughter was born on November the 29th, just after Thanksgiving in 1981. And uh, so I always kind of, okay, we get to, once I get to Megan's birthday, you know, Christmas is there. I mean, that first Christmas with her, you know, was just magic. And I have such incredible memories of, of her birth. I'm sure that all of you particularly remember that firstborn right and the and the and the and the wonder of it i know that when when i discovered that i was going to be a father this was something i took very seriously i wanted to be the best father that i could possibly be so i started reading everything in sight you know about babies and fatherhood and family life and you know what this was going to be like and figured i would become an expert and I decided that one of the things that I could do uh, was to manage kind of the physical arrangements of having this new person in our house. So identified her bedroom, what it would be, and I, since I'm an amateur woodworker, I started, I got some designs and I, I made a, a cradle, lovely wooden cradle that would rock. I made her changing table. I built the dresser that was in the bedroom. You know, this was all a part of this process of months going by, gradually preparing for this birth. Um, so by the time, you know, we're getting down to the end of November, it's going to pretty soon here, this baby's going to be born. I kind of, you know, kind of, okay, read, read up on the rest of the books and made sure the room was all in order and felt, you know, I'm pretty much ready for this. I, you know. So... My daughter, it turns out, was born on a Sunday morning about four or five minutes after midnight, okay? And, but my wife went into labor on a Thursday evening previously. And it was a long and exhausting process for both of us. Um, I knew, I mean, we just, certainly this, uh, the, um, the, the, uh, the, you probably heard some of this, you know, the, the woman who taught our Lamaze classes and all this kind of stuff, and, and the doctor that was working with us, he always, everybody said is always so concerned that babies are just going to miraculously be born. He said, don't worry, babies don't just fall out. You know, it's, well, that was really true. <laughs> Megan took her merry time. But he also said, don't worry, they all get born. You know, it's, it doesn't go on forever. Um, I began to get a little clue about how much longer this process might take when on Saturday evening, the midwife, who was wonderful in working with us, suggested in that very wonderful voice she had that was so calming, well, I think maybe we should take some bets on whether this baby will be born on Saturday or Sunday. <laughs> you know, I thought, well, that's a very polite way of saying don't get your hopes up. 
so sure enough, finally, just about midnight, Megan makes her way into the world, and this child is born. How many of you were there at the birth of one of your children? Oh, I mean all you women. I'm talking about you guys. I'm talking about you guys, okay? Jeez. Give me a break. It's really incredible, you know? I was just amazed, you know, just dumbstruck. Megan was born and placed up on, you know, my wife's belly, and the umbilical cord was cut, and, you know, the three of us were there. And then they have these tests that they always run on newborns. Um, I don't remember what they're called now, but they, Apgar? Okay, they, so, they, so the nurse takes my daughter and starts to walk away with her. And I start to go <laughs> like this. And I, and I stop cold because I realize I hadn't anticipated this. Where am I supposed to be? I mean, so far in our marriage, I've, obviously I would be with my wife, right? But now, there's this person that was no more than a few minutes old, and I cannot understand how it is that I can love this person more than I've ever loved anybody in my life. How did that happen? Just like that. And where should I be? And how would I navigate that space and know who to love and care for and how to love and care for them and where to be? And I went, this was not in any of the books. <laughs> and I went and I stood by my daughter while they ran those tests. And the nurse was, um, you know, very wonderful and wrapped Megan all up in these wonderful blankets and handed her to me and I went back. But I realized that while I was an expert at everything I had read and everything I had done, nothing had prepared for me what it would be like when love was written on my heart. And that, that, that the stuff was, that was on the page really didn't mean anything until it was inscribed in the center of my being. And that is what changes everything. It's not until love is incarnated in a real live human being that we can understand in any significant way what it means in our world. You can read all the books you want. Until that word comes off the page and lives and breathes. What's John say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Until love is written on your heart, it is not real. Let me tell you, I, 
as you all know, my life's never been the same. Megan turned 31 in November. 31. How in the world did that happen? <laughs> A woman after the first service set up and she said, well, get, get ready. My child just turned 63. <clears throat> okay, you haven't seen anything yet. All right. You know, and I could tell in the way she talked that there was love written on her heart. And that just like me, every day, her heart is mindful of this child. I don't care that he's 63. Doesn't matter that Jesus is, uh, you know, some 2,000 years old. If this is a child that's written in our hearts, then it's a thought that comes every day to us. I majored in uh, music at Arizona State University. It's a long time ago. We won't go back to when that was. It was before Megan was born. <laughs> um, studied music there with Doug McEwen, great conductor. I sang in, uh, I sang in several choirs there while I was studying choral conducting. And um, one of them was uh, what's called the Choral Union. That was, the Choral Union was the music group on campus that anybody could sing in if they could carry a tune, okay? Nothing else was required. So it was lots of people who just loved to sing who weren't music students at all. And there were easily 200 people in the Choral Union Wonderful, great fun to sing. And every Christmas time, the Choral Union did a concert and sang the Messiah, sections of it, along with the University Symphony Orchestra in Grady Gamage Auditorium on the Arizona State University campus. It's a wonderful performance venue uh, designed by uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. Probably seats several thousand, I would guess, three, four. Uh, wonderful, wonderful place to, to sing. Um, and I, at that time, was uh, working for United Methodist Church as a youth person, youth director kind of thing. And I also had a chauffeur's license, so I could drive the church's bus. They had a school bus. So I would be, the, I was the designated driver for, you know, all kinds of activities, taking seniors to activities here and there, the youth group to Southern California, those kinds of things. And so at Christmas time, when the Messiah concert came up, I would sell tickets to the concert to people in the church, like yourselves, and then instead of having everybody drive out to Tempe, I, they would all meet in the church parking lot, we'd load everybody onto the bus, and I would then drive everybody out together to the concert. It's great fun. My mother always came, participated in this. Uh, she loved music, but mostly she said, I will go anywhere to see you in a tuxedo. <laughs> so I was dressed, you know, in my performance gear, show up, get everybody on the bus. You know, of course, you got 40 people, some of them are late. None of that, would, you wouldn't, wouldn't be late, would you? So then, and of course, the traffic is lousy. Um, and then when we get out to the auditorium, there are... You know, I have to drop people off up by the entrance, and then I have to go out into the far end of the parking lot where I can put the bus. And by this time, I'm looking at my watch going, oh my God, I am late. I was supposed to line up with the choir like 15 minutes ago. 
you know, at the back of the auditorium so we could file in, you know, behind the orchestra. So with the wisdom that only comes to uh, young college students, I decided that it would be faster at this point to go into the main hall, into the lobby, down the aisle, the side aisle, and leap up onto the stage <laughs> from the front, you know, so that I, because the tenor sat down in front, right? It made perfectly good sense, all right? So, um, besides, I had to get there in time because I was the one who organized the tenor section to hum an A flat while the orchestra was tuning. We thought that, you know, they're all tuning to A440. And we just thought, you know, I would, they, they would look up at us like, what the world is that sound? Mm, just, just playing with the strings, guys, that's all. So anyway, I had to get in there. So, um, so I work my way through the lobby. The place is packed with people. Everybody is late. I'm, I'm working my way up the stairs, you know, a lot, right along the wall, trying to elbow my way past everybody. I get to the stop, the top where I can enter the main lobby to the auditorium, and I come around the corner, and, and here I'm stopped by this sign. It must be at least this big that's on a huge tripod right there. And not only does the sign physically stop me, but I read it, and I am just, oh my goodness. And this sign says, there are no reserved seats for the Messiah. And I thought, you know, that is so true. They did not know what they were saying. There are no reserved seats for the Messiah. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There are no reserved seats in this world for the Messiah. If the Messiah is going to have a place, it's because you take off your coat, you throw it over the chair next to yours, and you say, please, I want you to sit with me. I want you to be my guest. There are no reserved seats for the Messiah. The simplest job description I know of for a Christian is that it's our job to make room. It's our job to make room for the Messiah everywhere we go. To make sure there's a space for this baby to be born. To make sure there's a place for this man to teach to make sure there's a place for that message to be heard. We all know the rules, we all have read the scriptures, but it's only when the word becomes flesh and is written on our hearts and we make room for that in our lives that we are changed or the world we live in is changed. So our job is to make room make room in the concert hall, in the classroom, in boardrooms, in hospitals, in our homes, and perhaps most importantly, in our hearts.